from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. I'm Elaine Cha. In 2022, we said goodbye to a number of remarkable people who lived and worked in the St. Louis region. Some were prominent figures in the news, and some were folks you may have never heard of before and led notable lives that touched many. This hour, we honor those people by listening back to conversations with them or by hearing from those who knew them well. Later in the hour, we'll remember Cora Faith Walker, a politician who worked in a variety of advocacy and political roles, and St. Louis Symphony in unison chorus founder Robert Ray, among others. But first, in June, St. Louis lost a pillar of the Cherokee Street community when Minerva Lopez Montaigne died at the age of 60. The Latina entrepreneur helped cement Cherokee Street as a hub for Latino commerce and culture. She helped businesses expand in the neighborhood, and she created events like Cherokee Street's El Dia de los Muertos. She was also known for her cooking and award-winning margaritas. Let's listen back to a conversation between St. Louis Public Radio reporter Jeremy Goodwin and Gabriela Ramirez Arellano, co-host of St. Louis Public Radio's podcast, We Live Here Authentico, and executive director of the Center for Emerging Technologies and director of entrepreneurship at Cortex. They spoke in July, shortly after Minerva's passing. How would you describe her influence on Cherokee Street over the years? Oh my gosh, Minerva was a woman of grace and courage, and if I can say in Spanish, very stubborn, terca, terca como ella sola. Something that I really loved about her, but at the end of the day, it was always about community for her, about advocating for for us. Um, and she showed up with uh, for everything and anything that she sent, set her mind to, to make sure that the street and the residents on the street, near the street, and the Hispanic community in St. Louis um, had access. And, you know, during the 20 years that she was here, access meant a lot of different things. Well, we, we asked some other folks on Cherokee Street for their memories of Nerva. Uh, Carlos Dominguez is owner of Don Carlos Restaurant and Latino America, Americana Grocery Store. He worked with her there for about 15 years. He says she really knew how to unite people and to get business owners thinking of themselves as part of a community. She knew how to unite people from, from both uh, English and Spanish uh, communities. She, she was a bridge builder for, for, for a lot of uh, Spanish, Mexican uh, business persons you know, we didn't, some of us didn't speak a lot of English and didn't, um, we just wanted to run our business. We, we weren't involved in the community. But she did, she, she made us get involved in the community and, and, and start um, everybody mixing uh, and, and not just thinking about us, but, but thinking that it's the street for all of us. Uh, Spanish community and, and, and American uh, English speaking community. Carlos talks about her as a bridge builder. Does that resonate with you? Uh, definitely. I mean, she had a higher vision for all of us. Um, and I can't imagine how empty the street will be without her. Mm. Uh, as I say, I'm told that she one thing she excelled at was uh, in the ki- in the kitchen, that she was known for some of her dishes. Did you, did you have a chance to? Definitely. Well, she I was always privy to her Facebook posts that always made me hungry because she would post everything she made. Okay. Uh, but we also had some opportunities. Last year, we got together with another friend, Mireya Reyes, uh, to make the, um, the king's bread at the beginning of the year. So that was exciting, right? Because uh, she was a convener and she was an advocate, but she also wanted to continue to share our Mexican culture. And a lot of times she did that through food. Um, so it was just always an opportunity to have great discussions because, you know, we're all from different parts of Mexico. So we all think we make the best margaritas or the best tacos. And she was definitely not going to let us share that. Let's hear from someone else on the street who had some thoughts about Minerva. Emily Fenhouse is executive director of the Cherokee Street Community Improvement District. She said Minerva is just an incredible community leader. I can remember going to 
somebody's home in, in deep South County to try tamales that Minerva really wanted me to, me to taste and to highlight, you know, the different cuisine of Mexico that's represented here in St. Louis. I can recall stories of her over the years, um, even in her relationship with the, the business association, you know, speaking out about um, the importance, especially of the uh, Mexican entrepreneurial community here on Cherokee and how that grounded so much of the future development of, of the street. She really felt strongly that um, Cherokee Street is and, and should always be Calle Cherokee. Mm, and that, that's Emily Tenhouse. Does, the way she speaks about Minerva, does that jibe with, with your thoughts too? Yes, definitely. And Calle Cherokee is how we referred to the street whenever we were talking to each other. And I really, I'm using words like meaningful and important when I talk to you, but it sounds like she was a, she was a fun person. Oh, my and, gosh. And happiness followed her. Most of our conversations may or may not have involved tequila and aguardiente. <laughs> so uh, we were definitely about doing the work, but having fun while we did that and really trying to understand, you know, how to make a difference in, in, on Cherokee Street and in St. Louis. Did she strike you as someone who thought about how she'd be remembered you know, I don't know that that was necessarily important to her. She just knew that there were needs that need, needed to be filled. And because she was a convener and she knew different communities, so she was always building bridges, um, her goal was to bring us together to make sure we, that we made a difference. And it sounds like she has had such an impact herself, but also by bringing other people together, as you say. Um, what's the future of, of the neighborhood now? I don't know, but like I said earlier, it's going to be very sad to be on Cherokee Street knowing that she's no longer there. And I've I've spoken with Carlos and with Emily about what's next. What do we need to do to make sure that something physical remembers her legacy, but something long-term so that other people realize the trails that she blazed for all of us that came afterwards? And there, there are still s- some more goodbyes. Uh, there's a service, I understand, tonight to remember Minerva at St. Cecilia Church in St. Yes. Louis. What's going to happen tonight? Um, that will be a mass in her honor. We, um, Her sister was able to get the ashes. We had a mass on Friday, but we didn't have her there with us. Um, so the mass at St. Cecilia will be tonight at 6 o'clock. I would encourage people, if you did not get a chance to attend her celebration of life on Thursday or the mass on Friday, to stop by and that we pay our respects because she's been here doing this work so that we could continue it. Yeah, we're we're delighted to have you on the program to talk about this. In the past week and a half, have you seen people sort of coming out of the woodwork and maybe speaking up about their experiences with her? I have. The Celebration of Life, I mean, it really was a cool opportunity to hear how different people interacted with her and, and knew her, you know, more intimately. And I feel like we share a lot of the same common threads of, you know, convening, family, making a difference. Um, and it, it really is what she was about. And maybe this is the toughest question, but in our remaining time, do you have a favorite memory that jumps out? Aguardiente and tequila, that's all I have to say. Fair enough. Uh, the Regional Arts Commission had some words. Uh, they posted that she was an active link between numerous communities working across identities and experiences. It sounds like there's a lot there for people to learn from. There definitely is. Like I said, she just had a special way of making sure that she was an advocate for our culture, but that she shared it in a way that was not threatening to others, in a way that empowered not just the people that are a part of the community, but others around her. That was St. Louis Public Radio reporter Jeremy Goodwin speaking with We Live Here Authentico co-host Gabriela Ramirez Arellano in July to remember Cherokee Street entrepreneur and community advocate Minerva Lopez Montaigne. This hour, we're remembering some notable St. Louis region residents who passed away in 2022, including Metro East resident Yvonne Campbell, who owned My Just Desserts in Alton. She died in July from injuries sustained while she and her family were on vacation in Jamaica. The tour bus they were riding on was in a head-on crash. Her daughter, niece, and identical twin sister, Evelyn Campbell, were also involved in that accident. Yvonne was the mother of three children, and she was an active community volunteer. Last year, she was honored as a YWCA Woman of Distinction. She was also on the board of Alton's Main Street, 
which helps small businesses in the community. In 2020, Yvonne and Evelyn recorded an interview as part of the StoryCorps project, Untold Black Stories, a downtown Alton visual listening tour. They met in a virtual StoryCorps booth to discuss their mother's influence, the impact of COVID-19, and their careers. We didn't live in the biggest house, but we were fed, we were clothed, we were taken care of. I think now you have to instill in your kids. You might not have what you want, but you have what you need. I think that's probably what our mother instilled in us. You know, you might went further down the street and people had less than what we had, basically. Mm -hmm. My mom was a very good role model for never giving up. She worked for uh, Kmart in Wood River and she worked herself up to management, which was, you know, not likely back then for a black woman to hold a management job. People see me as a black woman, like surprised that I've been a nurse for 20 years, you know? And I can piggyback on what she's saying right now because I'm a business owner. I took over a business that has been in existence for over 30 years. And people will say, you're the owner? <laughs> that happens often. It's hard for some people to perceive that people of color can be a business owner, even in your own race. Yeah. So that's why I'm glad I'm a business owner because then whether you're a white child, a black child, Chinese, whatever you are, you can still look at me and say, oh, well, she can do that. It definitely has been hard not knowing if my business is going to survive. It keeps me up at night. COVID, yeah. our world, the election, we don't know anything. And it affects everybody. And this is probably the longest time I haven't been to church in my life. Me too. You know, and <laughs> you don't fellowship the same. You can't do anything the same. It's affecting your pockets and it's affecting your mind. So you just really got to stay, stay prayed up and just basically know, even though it's, it might be a lot of bad going on now, just think of all the good that it has been. Just trying to keep your mind, especially when you're responsible for other people, mm -hmm. like your kids and keeping them together, you know, and you want to keep telling them it's going to be all right, but you don't even, you know, your mind might not think it's all right. So it's heavy. That's a heavy thing. I look back and to know that I have gotten here, that's every reason not to give up. We have gotten several opportunities since COVID. Uh, McAllister's Deli did a, a Black Lives Matter campaign. So they hired us to make 33,000 cookies. We don't even make cookies. We do now, but we didn't then. So. I didn't know that phone call was coming. Yeah. That phone call came in the when, middle of COVID when I was like, what the heck are we going to do? And what did we do? We made 33,000 cookies that I never would have imagined. We made them in two months. And still to this day, I cannot believe we did it. But it's like God gives it to you and you do it. It's all faith driven. I'm just going to say that. Being that we are in a small community, it is important to know your neighbors. It's important to know your mayor. It's important to know the people that walk in your door. And, and if I see an unfamiliar face, I'm going to find out, is this your first time here? Where are you from? What brought you here? Um, you know, your community, you want to feel welcome. And it's small, you know, Alden is a smaller town. You can go in a store and a lot of people are familiar to you, you know. It's a comforting feeling. Yeah. That was Yvonne Campbell, the late owner of My Just Desserts in Alton, in conversation with her twin sister, Evelyn Campbell. Yvonne passed away in July. This hour, we're remembering a handful of notable St. Louis region residents who passed away in 2022. We need to take a short break. When we come back, we'll discuss the life and work of Martin Matthews, who co-founded the Matthews Dickey Boys and Girls Club in St. Louis in 1960. This is St. Louis on the Air. 
on St. Louis Public Radio. Welcome back. I'm Elaine Cha. The Matthews Dickey Boys and Girls Club has welcomed more than a million children through its doors. The nonprofit helps young people realize their full potential, primarily through sports. Martin Matthews co-founded the organization, and he died in November at the age of 97. We spoke with Matthews on this show in 2020, and we want to bring that conversation to you today. Here's former host Sarah Fenske. Sometimes a team has to play a doubleheader. Every now and again, it plays a tripleheader. But what about a quintupleheader? And what if you had to play those games in swampy, 95-degree St. Louis summer heat? The Matthews Dickey Knights did just that in 1977. The elite semi-pro team was in pursuit of a championship, but it had lost to the Chicago Pirates the day before. To take the $1,000 prize purse, it needed to win back-to-back-to-back-to-back-to-back games that July 4th. And so the players set out to do just that. That remarkable lineup of games was the subject of a recent Riverfront Times cover story by veteran St. Louis journalist Richard Weiss. And two of his subjects join us today to remember the event. Mr. Matthews, it's an honor to have you here. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. And we're also joined by Tom Sullivan. He was a 22-year-old player that day, and today he's the interim president and CEO of the Matthews Dickey Boys and Girls Club. Tom, welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. Mr. Matthews, what, what had drawn you to baseball in the first place? Well, drawn me to baseball in the first place because it actually was part of the Constitution, we the people. So we win and we lose. So therefore... I always had the Bible and the Constitution, so it, it drove me to that baseball was always something to draw people together and become we the people. Hmm. So baseball is so important to both of you, and this game, July 1977, uh, such a remarkable series of games. Tom, that was now 43 years ago. How vivid are your memories of that day? Oh, bright and beautiful. And I, I remember clearly the time that the team come from Chicago and put a weapon on us uh, that we never experienced. It's one thing to lose a ball game 13 to 1. You just chalk it up and you go on. But when you lose a, a ball game by one or two runs, you start asking yourself, what could you have done differently or right uh, to make this uh, a different outcome? This team come from Chicago and they were a group of cocky young men that could really, really, really play defense. And they showed us something that we didn't, weren't used to experiencing at the time, where they would whip double play after double play on us. And I said to say, uh, we had about six speedsters in our lineup, and everybody had a little pop in their bat uh, to uh, produce the gap shooters, but uh, that didn't work that day. Hmm. And so they, they came out, they beat us handedly, but the mistake that they made is once they beat us, they were not 
good winners. <laughs> and that's one of the things that Matthew Dickey teaches all of his youth is how to be good winners. Not good losers, but just good winners. And with that comes respect, restraint, and responsibility. Uh, we have to respect the game. We have to restrain ourselves from adversity. And we have a responsibility to ourselves and to the game. And so with them being such bad winners by bragging, being braggadocious in front of us, mm. it kind of it kind of set the pace and it set the the bar at a higher level for us that we needed to show them just who we were. Hmm. So they were just talking some trash after the game that put some fire into your bellies. Oh, absolutely. And and tell me, set the scene for us. You had this this devastating loss on July third to these guys who who were bragging about it. What was at stake in this tournament? Well, for young people like myself, what was at stake is just the the game itself. But there was a one thousand dollar pot for mm. the teams, and that is what they were competing for. These teams come from all over the regions, as far as Tennessee, as far as Chicago, and then some local teams. It was a very lustrous tournament. It filled the public parks in a way that we weren't used to, where everybody could have a good time on a Fourth of July weekend. And so everybody in our community who looked up to us uh, was there to watch, and we also had to display ourselves the way that we were taught. Mm-hmm. And so we have a lot at stake. Now, Mr. Matthews, on that July 4th, I understand you had to leave partway through to go to your job as a doorman. What do you remember about those first two wins you were able to watch that afternoon before you had to leave? What I remember about that is the determination of these young men. They were determined they were going to win. And that's why that we had taught up determination. And therefore, that's what I remember when I left to go to 625 South Skanker. I said, these guys will win because they're determined. So tell me, of these five games, and I don't want to give anything away, but going back 43 years, you guys won all five. Which game was the most challenging in that set? The most challenging game was the last game. Uh, and that's just because uh, we finally woke the Pirates up. They they sat and watched us play five ball games, and two one of the teams we just annihilated. But all the other games were very close. But once we won that first one, uh, we pretty much um, the way we explained it, we had our tails curled by then, mm-hmm. and uh, nothing nothing really could stop us. Uh, we had our own uh, faith in our own hands, and so. We just went on and said, okay, let's take this one, let's take that one. But the last game was the challenge because we had the top pitcher on their team. We had one of our pitchers on our team, and we. Uh, but they realized now that they were in a ballpark that, that involved a ball game in our city, and we weren't going to go away easily. And so uh, it was just a lot of pitching and defense in this ball game, and uh, we overcame all the adversities that were necessary to win two to nothing. What a happy ending on this! But it really wasn't the hap- It wasn't the ending there, um, and that's because the Matthews Dickey Boys and Girls Club is really about so much more than baseball. And and Tom, I'm I'm curious to hear you explain um, just what an impact it's made on your life. Well, I grew up in St. Louis as some of the high school, and then I went to St. Louis University and played baseball there. And in between those two institutions, I met Mr. Matthews, and I was able to uh, get acquainted with Matthews Dickey Boys and Girls Club. And I say this to say that if uh, for Matthews Dickey, it saves a tremendous amount of children's lives. You don't have to be in need uh, of uh, income or anything of the sort. It's just that sometimes you need a friend, you need relativity. And Matthew Stickey was there for me for that. And being uh, that Matthew Stickey was there for me, I was able to acquire some some work at Matthew Stickey in 1973. I've been there ever since. Mr. Matthews has, uh, uh, did his best to help me get other jobs, namely one at Anheuser-Busch. But I had to make a choice. Do I go to Anheuser-Busch or do I stay with Matthew Stickey? I had that option. And I'm so happy and thrilled that I was able to have that option because I chose to stay with Matthew Stickey, where I'm now currently the interim CEO of Matthew Stickey Boys and Girls Club. 
With that being said, Matthew Sticky has done a tremendous amount for the city of St. Louis in baseball, football, basketball, and many other sports. But along with that, it's done great jobs in education. Uh, it, we really accomplish our mission, which is uh, serving physically active, where educated young people uh, with families at the center of our efforts. That is our mission. And so when you think about athletics, they are physically capable. When you think about education, we do some things with, with STEM and, and uh, with the math, the science, and reading, and those type of things. And when you talk about families, we keep the whole family together. We do everything we can to serve them, whether it be by helping them with food during this pandemic or helping them with the utilities during this pandemic. And we've been very successful. I'm so proud to be a part of Matthews Dickey Boys and Girls Club, and I'm happy about that day that Mr. Matthews walked on a baseball field and hit fungos with me. Couldn't have been a better reward uh, for me just living in the city than to meet someone as great as Mr. Matthews, who's given his entire life, along with Hubert Dickey Valentine, to serve children of the community. Mr. Matthews, that, that's quite a testimonial there from Tom Sullivan. What does it feel like to hear him say those words? Well, I'm sure that you heard uh, what's the name talk. I mean, he's a young man, but he actually gave up a lot in order to be with Matthew Dickey. And he was along with uh, a young man by the name of Osbis. Who was the Manager Ray Turner, who was a pitcher, John Benoit was a pitcher, Garland Goodwood was a, a first baseman, one of the greatest hitters, and Kurt Ed was the greatest catcher of all time. And that, so therefore, these people there was great. They led me to do all the things I did in my life. I wouldn't give it up for nothing because I had gave my life to see that these young people was actually in the position to be a, a role model for others. That's Martin Luther Matthews, the co-founder of the Matthews Dickey Boys and Girls Club. He was the unofficial leader, mentor, and coach of that championship team. Matthews died in November at the age of 97. He is survived by three daughters as well as grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Also joining former host Sarah Fenske was Tom Sullivan, who at 22 years old in 1977 played a quintuple header with the Matthews Dickey Knights, a semi-pro baseball team. Sullivan joined us in 2020 when he was the interim president and CEO of the club. Another legacy figure who passed away this year less than two weeks ago was pianist and composer Robert Ray. The founder of the St. Louis Symphony's In Unison Chorus and the director from its inception in 1994-2010 worked with the SLSO as both St. Louis Symphony Chorus Assistant and later as In Unison Director for a total of 25 years. At the time of Ray's retirement from the St. Louis Symphony in 2010, SLSO President and Executive Director Fred Bronstein said, quote, Robert's work with the SLSO has been pioneering and inspirational. After 15 years at its helm, Robert leaves a huge mark of accomplishment and a reservoir of pride for a very unique aspect of this orchestra's relationship with its community, one that could not have been imagined without Robert, end quote. Here's a selection from Jeremy Goodwin's interview with Robert Ray in 2019, when Ray shared the musical inspiration behind his seminal gospel mass. And so when it was time for me to, to, to do something, when I got the idea of actually doing something, those were the models that I had in mind, uh, because there were no other African-American models. I think uh, my setting was probably, if not the first, one of the very first uh, gospelized settings of the Mass. So to put a finer, a finer point on it, when you sat down to compose that, what styles and musical and cultural traditions were you looking to weave together? To be honest, I think I brought all of them together because when you, when you hear the mass, uh, when you think of pure gospel, it's not a pure gospel com uh, composition. It utilizes some jazz elements. It utilizes some classical elements, and combines that with some gospel elements. So I I was using all of my my full palette of of music instruction as I sat down to write it. 
and that includes some some influences from what what I what I call European classical music. Oh yes, when uh, when you hear the mass, you can definitely hear it. some some sections are clearly based uh, on a tradition of, of European models, and then uh, combining that with the, with the uh, more contemporary gospel of that time. That was Robert Ray, who founded St. Louis Symphony's In Unison Chorus in 1994 and served as its director until 2010. He died earlier this month. This hour, we're taking time to remember notable St. Louis region residents who passed away in 2022, several of whom were prominent figures in the news, none perhaps as widely recognized as former Missouri State Representative Cora Faith Walker. Walker served as chief policy officer for St. Louis County Executive Sam Page and previously worked in a variety of advocacy and political roles, including service in the Missouri House of Representatives. She died in March at the age of 37. Her death sent a shockwave through the St. Louis region where the influential attorney and healthcare advocate had many friends and allies. After she passed, U.S. Representative Cori Bush spoke from the U.S. House floor and said that Cora Faith Walker was a, quote, one-of-a-kind leader and that she was, quote, unwavering in her commitment to uplifting those around her. At her funeral, her former State House colleague, Representative Crystal Quaid, reflected on her friendship and working relationship with Walker. She was never scared to stand up and fight for what she knew was right and dedicated every moment of her existence to working for others, especially our most disenfranchised and most vulnerable among us. When she grabbed that microphone, every single person listened and learned. I am so grateful that our paths crossed. I am so thankful for all the work she dedicated herself to and all the hearts and minds she was able to change while she was with us. Is it true? Is it good? Is it kind? Is it useful? Is it necessary? If not, then feel free to keep it to yourself. I've got work to do. Maybe you all live by her standards. That was Missouri Representative Crystal Quaid speaking at Cora Faith Walker's funeral in March. This hour, we're honoring the lives of people we lost in 2022 by listening back to conversations with them or by hearing from those who knew them well. We need to take a short break. When we come back, we'll remember musician Patrick Hagerty, who released the first gay country album ever in 1973. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Welcome back. I'm Elaine Cha. Patrick Hagerty, the queer country music trailblazer behind the 1973 album Lavender Country, passed away in October of this year. He leaves behind quite a legacy. In the 70s, just a few years after he came out as gay, Hagerty and his band Lavender Country recorded the first openly gay country album. 
While the album was open about its themes, it would take more than 40 years for music lovers and a record label to recognize it as such. Patrick Hagerty visited St. Louis Public Radio in 2016, alongside the man who helped propel him back into the spotlight he deserved, Jack Grelly. They talked about their unlikely partnership and Hagerty's journey from a forgotten chapter of country music history to a touring musician facing adoring, cheering audiences once again. In November, Jack Grelly returned to St. Louis on the air, where he talked to producer Danny Wisentowski. Jack, your side of this story uh, begins in about 2016, and it's when you picked up Lavender Country at a record store for the first time. Tell us, what was your first reaction to those songs? So our friend Ryan Koenig found the record first, and at this time, both Ryan and I were traveling all the time, and Ryan would come back with huge stacks of records, and he was like, I found this gay country record, you've got to hear it. And I remember we listened to it. It was probably over a couple drinks later in the evening. And it caught me off guard at first of how it, there's no bass to the record. It's a musical folk record. And then as th- the more I listened to it, um, the messages started to come out a bit more that it wasn't just of gay pride, but there was this fervor of revolution and radicalism. Yeah, and country music often so has that that feeling of yearning and, and this, he, he was yearning for a time that kind of wasn't there yet for him, it sounded like. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I think talking with Patrick and learning so much about that record, it was a form of activism that it was a c- collective effort to make that record. Mm-hmm. And as Patrick always said, he didn't know any other type of music besides country. So when they decided to form a gay band, no matter what it was going to be, it would have been radical and confrontational, but country was what Patrick knew, and that was authentic to him. I'm back in the That is Patrick Haggerty singing Back in the Closet again off his 1973 album, Lavender Country. Jack, listening to this, I hear classic bluegrass in the music, but the lyrics are revolution. (laughs) What what do you hear in this? I hear intersectionality. Patrick's naming all corners of the revolution at the time. He's naming the Black Panthers. He's naming the Young Lords, the militant Chicano movement. Uh, Puerto Rican movement. Um, He's mentioning the women's movement. He's mentioning the anti-war movement. He's mentioning class. He's mentioning the workers. And what that song's about is how we need intersections in a revolution for it to happen. We need all of the working class to come together. And at this time, when Patrick and the first wave of the gay liberation movement joined the anti-war movement or the women's movement, um, often weren't welcomed and were told, nah, we're not ready for this. Like, no, you're, you're going to blow it for the rest of us. Jack, did you know, Patrick's release of this album in 1973, you know, he had just come out a few years prior. Uh, this was also just a few years after Stonewall. Did, did he talk to you about what his expectations were for that album at the time? And, and was he disappointed? Um, I think the expectation was no matter what we do, um, people aren't going to be ready for it. Um, Stonewall was uh, extremely impactful to Patrick and I can only imagine to the broader gay community at the time. Uh, I do know that Lavender Country 
Lasted a few years. They played a handful of shows, played the first Pride Festival in Seattle. Released a a thousand records um, independently. It was um, funded through a gay community organization in Seattle. It was in underground gay men's magazines. Um, That's how it was advertised. Advertised, but I know that um, Patrick would say that it broke his heart of uh, it disbanding. Oh, and you know that that br- the result of that broken heart, though that album that still exists, that passed into your hands at a certain point. You you listened to it, and it, it did something to you. And you were actually able to meet Patrick in 2016 and to kind of pitch this idea: let's go on tour. What what was that like? Uh, ma- making this offer to him was was it a hard sell? <laughs> it's kind of funny. So uh, my friend Julia Van Horn, who was also part of, uh, ended up being part of the band, she was the one that was like, oh, not only is this documentary shown in Columbia, but it says now that Patrick Haggerty is going to be there. We should go and meet him. And so we snuck into this after party, and I'm just looking for any older gentleman in a cowboy hat, potentially. And <laughs> yeah. Patrick was shorter in stature and, and walks in, and it's this tiny old gentleman in a cowboy hat, all alone at a party at a packed loud bar. And I walked up to him and I just asked, are you Patrick Haggerty? He said, I am. I said, well, my name's Jack. I came from St. Louis to meet you. And I, the initial idea was just, I would love for you to come to St. Louis and play a show. And he said, oh, wow. Well, I would need a band. And I said, no problem. Well, whatever you want. What are you, what are you thinking? He said, well, the only requirement's a fiddle. And I said, well, we can make that happen. And then he said, other than that, we just need a place to stay, and the rest is up to you. And once that concert got announced, all these other towns in the Midwest uh, started contacting Lavender Country and asking if the band could go there as well. Wow. And you, know, you, you mentioned that Lavender Country, the band, had existed for a few years after the album's release, but had, had it ever had a tour like this? No. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not sure where all they played. I know that just mainly around Seattle, maybe in the Bay Area, but don't quote, don't totally quote but me. But nowhere on that. around, you know, St. Louis or where he got to go on this r- new tour you you were with. Never, no. They it was very much a, a grassroots type of thing that they played more just uh, smaller gay community events at the time in the seventies. Mm-hmm. Back in twenty sixteen, Patrick Haggerty again spoke uh, to Willis writer Arnold about his life and his music, and this is what he told him. To have made Lavender Country 43 years ago and have it be dead as a doornail my whole adult life, with with me knowing that I was going to die with Lavender Country being unsung, to wake up in a new world and have people like Jack run you down and say, hi, it's me, I'm Jack, I'm a straight white country musician, I want to do a show with you. Wow, you do? You do? (sighs) Honest? That was country musician Patrick Haggerty speaking in 2016 about going back on tour after meeting musician Jack Relly. And, and Jack is here in our studio talking with us about the life of Patrick Haggerty. Jack, we just heard Patrick reflecting on what it was like to go back on tour. And that last word, honest, as if he was a question he might have asked you at one point of not being sure if this was really serious. Were you really interested in his music? Was he really going to get this chance? It sounded like he almost didn't believe that this, this could happen this late in his life. Is that what you saw? I did, um, and I didn't expect that. Um, you know, the, uh, the the record had been reissued. It's a pretty hip, smaller independent label. This short documentary had been made. It's touring some film festivals. So I, I just kind of assumed people were asking him to come play and provide him opportunities. And uh, so, yeah, I had no idea that um, it would mean so much to him and during that first tour in St. Louis um, spending time with Patrick and his husband JB um, it was very clear of how much it meant to them and how special it was. Tell us a bit about you know what do you remember from that tour or or getting to see this musician up on stage and, and feeling those those ties of history that emotion of 
maybe seeing a musician doing exactly the thing that he wanted to be doing? There's two things I'd like to say. Um, (laughs) One, Patrick, especially during that tour and those first waves of shows, I mean, he would have the crowd eating out of the palm of his hands, hanging on every word, and he took full advantage and would sometimes tell stories for 15 minutes, you know, Um, things in the industry that people would be like, you don't do that, you know, got to tell the cliff notes or something. Mm -hmm. And so Patrick really every night just gave it his all, and it would exhaust him physically. I mean, he was 73 or 74 at that point. Um, And... Yeah, what wasn't in the best health. And so he would give it his all. And then afterwards, especially on the road, we'd go to maybe an after party that some people would invite us to. And Patrick and JB would, would hang out till four in the morning like the best of us. And um, it was really amazing to see that. But also Patrick and JB during that first tour and throughout all the Lavender Country um, collaborations that I know Patrick did, he would take the intentional time to get to know each and every person. It would be these intentional one-on-ones, these heart-to-hearts, and he would just, he he had such space for that and such a natural connecting with people that it then became such a deeper thing than just the music, and um, we all became very close. Let's listen to another track off Lavender Country. That's the 1973 album from Patrick Haggerty. And this one is called Waltzing Will Trilogy. Waltzing Will was soft and sweet. The way he waltzed was too iffy. For a psychiatrist to think was fit. So they said, hey son, we think we should sneak you a slug, a raw manhood. The state hospital's just the place to get one. Now they call him up, we're sicky. They hurt him to group therapy. They lock him up at night so he don't escape. And if they hear any gay talk, a sizzle of electroshock. That was musician Jack Grelling in remembrance of country musician Patrick Hagerty, who died in October. This October, our hearts also went out to the students, teachers, and community members affected by gun violence at Central Visual and Performing Arts High School in St. Louis. On October 24th, a former student wounded seven people and fatally shot health teacher and cross-country coach Jean Kuchka and sophomore Alexandria Bell who was less than a month from her 16th birthday when she was killed. Friends and family members remember Alexandria as a bright and energetic young woman with a strong personality who looked forward to moving from intermediate dance classes to more advanced training. She was just a very well-rounded individual, again, beautiful inside and out. We just had our homecoming dance, and um, I like to claim most beautiful children. I said, she looks just like me uh, at the dance. She looks very beautiful, and so... Um, just a wonderful personality, pretty serious student, pretty no-nonsense about things, but definitely had a personality with her peers and with their classmates. That was CVPA principal Casey Shahid remembering Alexandria Bell. Jean Kuchka is remembered as someone who would do anything for her family, students, or any other person in need. Her oldest child, Steve Kuchka Jr., remembered his mother as a caring person. She was the most selfless person we've ever known. And I know many of you would agree. Mom was always there for us. She was always there for anyone who needed her. That was the common thread of Jean's life. Let's celebrate that life. Kuchka is survived by her husband, two sons, three daughters, and six grandchildren. 
In 2022, we said goodbye to a number of remarkable people who lived and worked in the St. Louis region, like firefighter Ben Paulson, who was killed fighting a fire that had engulfed a vacant home in North St. Louis. St. Louis soul singer Roland Johnson, who spent decades shaping the St. Louis music scene, and countless others, many more than we could remember on today's show. And we continue to lose loved ones to the coronavirus pandemic. Since the beginning of the pandemic, more than 59,000 people have died from COVID-related deaths in Missouri and Illinois. More than 12,000 of them succumbed to the virus this year. Around the globe, COVID-19 has claimed millions of lives. It's been a long and heartbreaking era, and there haven't been many opportunities to collectively mourn. To everyone who will be missing someone at the table this holiday season due to the coronavirus or something else, We extend our hearts to you. You are not alone, and it's okay not to be okay. As grief educator Eileen Wolfington shared with us this year, grief is an ongoing journey. To help ease pain along the way, she suggests finding a way to practice honoring your loved ones who have passed. Send them love, light a candle, prepare some type of ritual, or find someone that can work with you so that you can feel that you're there. It's the essence of the love that you had for them because grief will transform into love, but the average person doesn't know that. This episode was produced and edited by Emily Woodbury. Podcast designed by Aaron Dorr. Our production intern is Avery Rogers. Alex Hoyer is our executive producer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Our podcast proudly supports St. Louis artists by using music from Life Creative Group. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com.